Support for this episode comes from SAS. SAS is going all in on AI to help the world get more done with data. See for yourself in Las Vegas, April 16th to 19th at SAS Innovate, the data and AI experience for everyone and every role from top executives to data scientists, engineers, analysts, and more. I'll be there leading a panel discussion about the importance of responsible AI. It's just one of the many sessions that will highlight the massive potential of AI. Visit innovate.sas.com and use the code CARA to save $100 on registration. I'll see you there. Support for this episode comes from The Current. The Current podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands. Tune in to hear what's driving conversation in the fast-moving world of digital advertising with unique insights from brands as diverse as Hilton, Instacart, Moderna, Major League Soccer, and more. And in this presidential election season, The Current explores what a national political advertiser like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and a major CPG brand like Hershey can learn from each other. Listen in and subscribe to The Current at The Current current.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway, back in London for the first time in 10 weeks. How's the weather? It's spectacular here. I mean, it's just beautiful. Do you want to know what I've done the last couple of days? No, tell me. Okay. Um, Yesterday, I was in Atlanta speaking to the good people at Chick-fil-A. By the way, the most successful restaurant in the world right now in terms of dollars per square foot. It's literally just... And also, I was thinking about you. They're actually quite progressive. I think they got a pretty bad well, rap. Do they? I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't know. I don't like, uh, I don't like takeout places. But, but okay, go ahead. My sons love it. My sons go there all the time um, and eat up the whole place. No, I met, I met the management team. It's pretty diverse, pretty progressive. Anyways, they're literally the most... Uh, because they don't, they're not, they're private and they don't announce their earnings and the CNBC doesn't go ape shit about just, this thing is just, it's a phenomena. Um, I was there, then I got on a plane from Atlanta to London and then went and spoke to I, uh, the folks at IMG, which is that monster sports um, management company, division of William Morris Endeavor, and listened to a bunch of guys in consensual hallucination talk about how cable and ESPN was coming back. Um, but that was, it was lovely. It was lovely. People that are really friendly and really nice. And Good. Okay. Talked a lot about Premier League. Anyways, that's what I've been up to. What have you been up to? Scott's on a world tour. Oh, I'll, I've been reading the Isaacson book for my interview today, which is going to happen later. I've just been doing stuff. With Walter? Yeah. Well, Cal, well, Cal, I don't agree with your assessment of my, my, my scribe. <laughs> We're going to have an election. We're going to count the votes. Uh, that guy is literally looks like Ronald Reagan and James Carvel made it. If James Carville and Ronald Reagan had a baby, it would look like, yeah. it would look yeah. and sound like Walter Isaacson. No, all right. Okay. Um, just so you know, the Chick-fil-A controversy was that its CEO uh, directed a lot of money going charitable donations to anti-LGBTQ organizations. And then in 2019, a couple of years ago, they they made major changes to its charitable foundation and they ended the don donations. The, the, the CEO, Dan Cathy. The founder made some homophobic comments that he justifiably got real strong pushback. But what's interesting is that it's been like a poltergeist haunting them for the better part 11 or 12 years. And if you go down there, granted, they're really nice to me, so I'm biased, but if you go down there and you meet the management team and you just kind of get a feel for them, they're more progressive than a lot of companies. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's complicated, but that 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 CEO definitely had some issues, as they say. And that said, you know, um, my sons knew about this many years ago, and they kept going. Mom, I'm all for gay and lesbian rights, but the chicken is delicious. <laughs> Sorry. Was, Sorry, Mom. They said, we have tried them all, and they would eat it. And I, I said, okay, you make your choices, sons. Um, they also love In-N-Out, who had a little bit of a controversy around some biblical things. And well, anyway. Prayer on the Psalms or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Everybody should do how, how deal with these things the way they want to um, instead of getting all exercise. Don't ha- I, don't, I don't happen to like fast food that much. Um, I like a McDonald's hamburger every now and then, a cheeseburger. Um, but that's about it. I don't, not very often. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about. What have I been doing? I don't know. I'm headed to a wedding this weekend. My uh, friends from sixth grade uh, are getting married, um, the second marriages, and uh, I'm very excited to go to their wedding. It's very nice. That's nice. In Princeton, where I grew up. Yeah, it's nice. And then I'm going to another wedding the next weekend with two lovely young lesbians who are going to run the world someday, and they're amazing. So we're doing that. So a lot of weddings. Well, you know what they say about second marriages? It's a triumph of hope over experience. No, they're great people. They're going to be very happy. They're, they've known each other their whole lives. And so I'm very excited for that. It's going to be fun. And I wish them all well, all both couples very well. You know the difference between a first wife and a second wife. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the second wife has real orgasms and fake jewelry. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Anyways. <laughs> Um, I knew you couldn't. You couldn't get. You couldn't pull out, could you? Uh, so to speak. Uh, I'm. I'm not even going to touch that one. I'm not All even right. Touch okay. That don't. One. Don't. Try not to touch anything, Scott. That's my my philosophy for <laughs> oh you in general. If we want to keep the show going, um, we have a lot to talk about. Um, te- big text, big gathering on Capitol Hill. Obviously, speaking of not touching, uh, Google's landmark antitrust trial and a new job in journalism that Scott would be perfect for, which we will get to first. Uh, Scott, I predict this may be your last episode of Pivot USA today. And apparently the Tennessean is looking to fill uh, positions for a Taylor Swift reporter and one for a Beyonce reporter. The two roles will be focused on capturing the musical, cultural, and economic impact of the two icons. Wow. I mean, Scott, this is your opportunity. How far are you along in the interview process? Be honest with me. Well, I got through the interview process, but similar to my first wife, they claimed I had revenge issues, to which I responded, we'll see about that. (laughs) <laughs> that's good what what do you it's not good that wasn't that good, good at all what, what no that wasn't good okay. um but what do you think about this i mean that's interesting they are economic powerhouses yeah, the these two the juggernauts. um juggernauts i would add barbie in there too but what do you think about having a taylor swift reporter i mean you know more i mean you're gonna forget more about journalism than i'm gonna know what do you think um i it's a little specific <laughs> yeah, uh, you know right. i think you should um i i, I think you probably if you're in Nashville, I guess, but she's sort of such a, she won everything at the VMAs and was totally elegant in doing so. Um, she really is one of these central figures right now. That's not going to last, presumably. There'll be other artists and everything like that. I think to have an, a major artist's reporter, sure, right? And who are, yes, I see that. And of course, right now you would focus on her and Beyonce, but I don't know. It seems, I mean, you know, it's not a fan one. It's not to say what who she's dating or things like that. It's about, well, yeah, kind of is cultural and economic impact. Yeah. So when I first read this, to be honest, I thought it was a head fake just trying to get a press release for USA Today. Although I did, I did get a scoop about supposedly her 45 ex-boyfriends are collaborating on an album. Do you know the title of the album? No. What is it? <laughs> Look what you made me do. Uh, m- maybe it's about you. 
<laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah. You, get, you know, you're pushing against the tide with hating hating on Taylor. I can see a reporter about, it's a, like a cultural or, I don't know, we call it a lifestyle reporter, but devoting a reporter to one artist? I don't know. It doesn't that kind of signal the downfall? That's like, isn't that ringing the bell at the top of the I think they'll do well with it. People can love Taylor Swift and Beyonce content, and they have huge fan bases. I think fan economy is more an interesting. I think that would be a, like, how does the fan economy work and how the marketing, that could, you could yield a million stories about really interesting and, and go everywhere, you know, not just influencers, but all kinds of places, because I think the fan economy deserves it. In any case, the Apple event sort of came and went. What did you think of that? That, Kara. I just watched their, um, did you watch their uh, Mother Nature video they did? Oh, about how they're going to try and solve climate change? Yes. Yeah, they had, what's her name? She's a great actress. It's Octavia uh, Spencer. She was playing Mother Nature. And Apple offices are already carbon neutral. Yeah. This building is carbon neutral? Oh, yeah, we, we do it with a mix of clean energy and eliminating greenhouse emissions. It's kind of like if you were to... Uh... You're seriously explaining carbon neutrality to Mother Nature? Right. No, I'm sorry. You want to tell me how photosynthesis works, too? Don't. Tim Cook was in it. Super awkward. Um, the, the, a lot of the executives actually were in it. And it was all about how they'd come up to speed on their on their sustainability stuff. And um, and sh- and Mother Nature came to check on them. Um, it was. Did it work? I, I don't know. No, I I no. I wish it did. I don't you know what I mean? I see the. Like it was a good idea on paper, so but I don't know. It just was. Uh, it was. It wasn't a lot. The new phones. I think the biggest news, of course, is better cameras. Of course, as always, and the cameras are spectacular. This USB charging um, and the action button. I guess this. This is the USB C. Everything is changing to USB C. Some people think they were forced by Europe, but you know it's the direction everything's going. Everyone should be having the same chargers instead of the lightning ones. USB C adapters will now be available on Apple's website for twenty nine dollars. This is a little dongle you're going to put on. Following the event, Apple stock dropped 2%. At time taping remains down. It's been getting pummeled. Um, I think people are wondering whether you're going to buy one. I haven't rushed to buy one. Uh, I don't quite see the point. My phone is in good shape. There's only so many times people can go to the well here with this thing. Um, Although I always upgrade, but not necessarily as quickly. I don't know. What do you think? This felt to me like the least exciting uh, or buzzy new iPhone. It was just, I couldn't you know, a different charging port. It felt sort of, I'll I'll get it. I'll get it because I want the newest one. And I like to, you know, it's something I just do when they come out with a new one. But what's remarkable here, I mean, so you said a couple things, and there's been a lot of headlines around the stock not crashing. Although it's been up for the year, let's be clear. It's from 125 year to date to 175 and over one year. It's like tripled in the last five. I mean, people would pray for the stock performance. Last month, it's down. Last six months, it's slightly down. I would argue for the last 10 years, it's arguably the best managed company. They have they have massively increased their service, services revenue, which is high margin, despite the fact that they don't sell as many phones, or this year they may pass Samsung. Uh, an iPhone user is worth something like seven to 10 times more than an Android user. At the IMG thing, I I said, well, you know, Apple could buy Disney for a 5% dilution. I mean, one company's trading at $3 trillion, Disney's at $150 billion, And the guy correctly said, it's actually this really interesting guy starting the, the uh, British Basketball League. They're starting a basketball league here. He said, why would Apple want to buy Disney and take on that headache? Why wouldn't they just continue to charge 30% if they want to download, you know, the Hulu or the or the um, Disney Plus app? But yeah, it's it's Apple... 
you know, they've done, whenever anything looks like it's flattening, they do a great job of taking capital and finding other other means of growth. I just don't. It's just how many times can you pull a rabbit out of a hat? That's all. That's the, you know, they really are quite, um, they're, you know, they, they have kept it going for a long time. And and this action button on the side is interesting. You know, I, it, it's always interesting. It's, it's all, you know, I just, I think I have not rushed to buy it yet, which is interesting. Um, and and I don't know why. I just, I, you know, put, moving my stuff over is a pain. I think that's one of the reasons. I probably will. You can customize what this action button does. It's just making it easier and easier to to use. It replaces that ring vibrate thing. So, uh, yeah, okay, good. What I would be really interested to know is that, I mean, for the first time, Apple's now getting in the crossfire of this non-shooting war, this trade war. I'd be really curious to know, because I think Tim Cook is just an, an enormous brain, to what extent, what percentage of their supply chain have they diversified away from China? Because I remember waking up three years ago, uh, I was on the board of Urban Outfitters, because, you know, I'm quite important, Kara, and they, we were talking, we woke up one day and realized that a scary percentage of our tops were made in a small radius outside of uh, Shenzhen or wherever it was, that it was closed because of COVID. And supply chain diversification, or, or trying to create a more heterogeneous supply chain for diversity, has been just the call sign of supply chain officers. And now, even, I think just recently, Mexico surpassed China for the first time or, or renewed or recaptured their their crown as the leading exporter uh, into the United States. But almost every board I've been on or talked to, they're all trying to figure out how to diversify their China exposure. They definitely are exposed more than almost, except for Tesla. Tesla and Apple are the two companies that are most exposed in that country. You know, I do think they have to. They absolutely, you're at, I think that's the that's what I would focus in on rather than these sort of upgradable products. I mean, the same thing with the Apple Watch Series 9. I don't think I'm going to, you know, it's it looks the same. It has a brighter screen. The Series 8 is still pretty good. Like, same, same, it's a lot of same. Actually, the data, I just found the data. So 80% of Apple products are manufactured in China, but it's it's 19% of the revenues. What would really hurt Apple is if they started clamping down on their operations in China. I think actually there are more Apple employees in China than there are in the U.S. So while on the demand side, it's obviously important. It's one-fifth of revenue. It's four-fifths on the supply chain side of their product. Well, that's what's made them so strong. China did say that it hasn't issued any ban on Apple's phone, iPhone, by the way, but they had security issues. It's super confusing, just for people to understand, is that the Chinese government said that we've always been open to foreign companies and welcome to seize opportunities and share the fruits of China's economic development. <laughs> yeah. Many media reports on security <laughs> incidents of the Apple's iPhone attaches great importance importance for information and cybersecurity. So they're raising these security issues after this journal story about banning the iPhone. It dropped the, sh- the shares. I mean, it's obviously they're in the middle. Of, we're in the middle of an issue with China. So and, and it's it's not a, one that's going away anytime soon. It's actually the next the next century. And this is what it's going to be about. We will not be around for the last part of that century. But in any case, uh, something here now is Drew Barrymore is facing backlash after returning to work on her show during the ongoing strikes. Uh, she posted an explanation on Instagram saying the show return is in compliance while, uh, with not 
discussing or promoting any struck work. She's technically correct. Talk shows fall under different contracts than those expired when a deal is not reached. But the WGA East responded on social media saying the show was indeed a WGA covered struck show itself and is returning in violation of strike rules. Picketers are assembling outside the broadcast center um, where taping new episodes has begun. Barrymore is a member of SAG-AFTRA and initially stood in solidarity, stepping down from hosting the MTV Movie Awards in May. Of course, she's not the only one. Your friend, uh, Bill Maher, announced in real time will also be returning without writers or writing. Maher has already caused controversy surrounding the strike, calling the demands kooky. Um, He was relatively calm in his explanation. He said there's more people involved. Um, he won't stay calm, of course, but but he, you know, he's like more people are involved. We're not going to do the, I guess, the beginning monologue and some of the stuff he does from the desk and some of the essay stuff. So he's not going to do writing. So it'll be more panels. Stephen King immediately wrote, this is how strikes are broken. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, what do you, I, I was supposed to go on right before the strike. I would not appear on the show, I would have to say. I would have a real issues with appearing on the show. Just uh, It just seems... Um, I get, uh, you know, just for people's context, in the last strike, I think they, they went back six weeks after in the middle of the strike. They, a lot of the, the, the hosts did return without writing. So it's happened before. So I'm not sure. People don't like Bill Maher, too. That's an issue of it. Um, so what do you think? I think this is the beginning of the end. If you look at the strike, I think it was the UAW and UPS that got solved because both had incentives to end the strike and UPS was making money. And if you look at, I believe the strike that the UAW is threatening, or the I think it's the UAW, actually it was the Teamsters and UPS, excuse me, but the strike that the UAW is threatening against the automobile companies, I think that'll get solved because I think their demands... While they're asking for a lot, their ma- demands are fairly easy to understand. We want to make more money. And also the automobile industry, including the domestic automobile industry, is fairly healthy. So they have incentive, both sides have incentive to solve the problem. And there's there's juice to squeeze, to be squeezed here. Whereas if you look at the riders, they chose to strike at a, in a period of absolute disruption and falling revenues uh, from the people they were striking against. Not all of them, but yes. But go ahead. Yeah. Because Netflix was doing rather well and tech companies. Netflix right? is doing well. And tech companies separately because it doesn't, economics don't matter. Yeah, but show them. me the companies they're picketing in front of and I'll show you a company whose stock is at a 10-year low and whose operating margins have been crushed. Viacom's off 75%. Disney's at a 10-year low. Time Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is, if you look at the debt, is basically off 50%. I mean... Anyway, they just, that's an example of a strike that was totally, was miscalculated, mishandled. And taking too long. I would agree. I think this, the length of this, they had to expect that these people, because they had in previous strikes, these these talk shows especially had. um, And you can't just watch the anti-union shops like Greg Gutfeld grab everything. It'll be interesting to see if this group of people that's doing this podcast of talk show hosts are going to, which one's going to fall first, um, Strike Force 5. Uh, look, I, I was meeting with several producers, writers, and you can they were they were talking amongst themselves that they're thinking about going back to work and then agreeing to comply retroactively with whatever the conditions are of a negotiated strike. Yeah, I definitely you can just see that. the atmospherics, Kara. People are fed up, and here's the problem: the people who are most powerful on the writing side are the ones that don't need um, new conditions from the strike. 
Well, they're they're also getting showrunners are starting to get together. I know a number of showrunners and they're starting. It's cracking. That's the bottom line. That's it is. I mean, one one wrote me it's a mess. The funniest tweet though was Katie Delaney. For every surprising Drew Barrymore is an equal but opposite unsurprising Bill Maher. <laughs> you know, it's it is interesting that she went first. It gave him cover because everyone's like, Oh, it's Bill Maher being Bill Maher. But it is, you're right. It's a it's a break and uh, it'll these showrunners are where the rubber is going to meet the road because they are starting to really feel the pressure. The fact that they haven't, I mean, here's the tail wagging the dog. If you didn't know there was a rider strike, would you know? Yeah, no. Would you know? And if consumers don't miss you, then you have no leverage. And these guys have no leverage. Well, their whole point is eventually you'll know, you'll feel it. Eventually, we're over 130 days into the strike. Yeah. And look right. uh, look what happened with the Steamsters and UPS. Before they went on strike, it was settled. And I believe, I, I think you're going to see a strike with the UAW. I don't think it's going to go very long because guess what? Their demands are pretty clean and rational. And the people striking have leverage. Well, we'll see. That said, I don't, I'll be interested to see who goes on the show. Would you? I don't think I would. I No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, I was thinking about that. And not, not that Drew Barrymore would ever call me, but if Bill Maher, I don't think I would. And you know why? Because I'm in a position of privilege. And that is, I don't need the show. But there are a lot of people who need the money. And I'll give you an example. My first wife was this, this high character person with these Midwestern values. And she got it from her parents and specifically her mother. And her mother was a school teacher. And her mother, um, I remember the LAUSD Teachers Union had struck two or three times in her career. She'd been teaching, I don't know, the seventh or the eighth grade. Can you imagine how hard it is to teach 12 and 13-year-olds? She'd been teaching for 40 years, and she never would not, she, she like missed one day. And when they would strike, she would just, she wouldn't go on strike. She was like, I'm here to teach kids. Uh, and she just refused to ever engage in not, in not showing up to work and teaching kids. And I think that, I think you're going to see, she did it for the right reasons, but I think you're going to see a lot of these people in the union decide for a bunch of reasons that they're going back to work. Yeah. I don't know why I brought up Barbara Spencer. Anyways, hope she's well. Nice woman. Let me say, I think Drew Barrymore is the more important figure here because she's well-liked and she, you know, she gave her, uh, people are calling her scab all over Twitter and social media, but I think Bill Maher, everyone's like, oh yeah, of course, Bill Maher would do it. He's such a pain in the ass. See, I think it's I think it's entirely flipped. I think Bill Maher is a is a force. His show is one of the longest running shows. No, but I mean, I'm talking about when people go, oh, she's doing it. Oh, I see what you're saying. You mean they expect it from Bill? They don't expect it from Drew. Right. Yes, they're like, of course, he's going to do it. He, he does controversial, contrarian things. You know, with her, it's a little different from a perceptible. People will be like. Well, I, she's a nice person. I don't. She's not really a scab. You know what I mean? It just. It. It. it I think it has more damage than Milmar. I do. It's just so funny the difference between perception and reality, and that is, I've been on Mar three times, and I've gotten to know a little bit the staff or a little bit about them. I have never seen so many people who have been with one person for ten, twenty, thirty years. Yeah, they have. I mean, he is very loyal to his staff, and his staff is very loyal to him. He is. I would say that some of them are worried about his sort of rightward shift. I've heard that from people there. That they think he's gone red pill? A little bit. And they, you know, a little bit. But, you know, it doesn't really matter. Who cares? If you like him, you like him. If you don't, you don't. Well, he's worried about your leftward shift. <laughs> it's not leftward. <laughs> I'm such a capitalist. Anyway, um, I don't, but I wouldn't 
go on it, either show. I just was like, let's just let this thing settle. I wish, I hope they settle. People I know, not on just that show, but a lot of them are really suffering. They 100% are. What does it mean for a large swath of people who've been out of work for 100 days, three and a quarter months, and they weren't expecting it? Yeah, this is how strikes, this is how strikes are broken, as Stephen King said. Anyway, let's get to our first big story. Well, there wasn't a cage match, but Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and the biggest names in tech descended on the Capitol Wednesday for a special AI forum organized by uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. They all, of course, had a sleepover at my house. Uh, No, they didn't. No, they didn't. The 60 senators attended the closed-door meeting with topics including open-source models, security privacy. Uh, Musk and Zuckerberg were seated at opposite ends of a table. I mean, honestly, who cares? Um, Here's what Musk told reporters after the summit. I think it was it was, it was very um, civilized discussion actually among um, some of the smartest people in the world. So uh, I thought it was, uh, Senator Schumer did, did a great uh, a service to humanity here. I think we'll um, I think something good will come of this. this I think this this meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. God, he's such a drama queen. Okay, fine, whatever. It's a meeting. Um, I I thought. I want this meeting to be more than a press release. Um, I suppose they're a useful conversation. I think I'm in the same camp as, um, of all things, Josh Hawley and Senator Warren are all in the same camp. Uh, I don't sure why it had to be private. These uh, Warren said these tech billionaires want to lobby Congress behind closed doors with no questions asked. That's just plain wrong. Senator Marsha Blackburn, not exactly a friend of Elizabeth Warren, said in a statement, Congress has always conducted its business in the sunshine. Today's forum should have been no different. And Senator Josh Hawley called it a cocktail party for big tech. You know, they all raised their hands when they said there should be regulation. Elon said, apparently, it's important for us to have a referee. One of the contentions was open source systems that public can access. Zuckerberg is pushing that, but some people think it's dangerous. Uh, Zuckerberg said uh, open source democratizes access to these tools and helps level the playing fields and foster innovation for people and businesses. He has an argument to make. You know, uh, what do you think? What do you think? I think it was, I just, well, I disagree with the statements about Sunshine. I think it was actually probably likely much more productive Uh, behind closed doors, because whenever it's on camera, the people looking to raise money off of YouTube clips by doing identity politics and accusing them of being billionaires, Senator Warren, or on the right saying that they're censoring and not actually getting anything done, not actually asking questions to learn, but asking questions for a gotcha moment, hoping that it goes on YouTube and TikTok. Yeah, and raise money. These things are circuses. They're entertainment. So I think that I would imagine the conversation was just more civil and more productive out of the glare of fundraising and cameras. And I thought Elon Musk sounded about as reasonable as he can sound there, except for the civilization thing, uh, which I think I agree with you is just more catastrophizing and techno-narcissism that technology is the key to saving or destroying humanity all the time. But I hope, but but this is where I'm cynical. I think they all understand theoretically that there needs to be regulation here, and then they deploy their army of lobbyists to make sure that the regulation doesn't get in the way of their earnings. So I'm all for it, and I hope that they bring in incredibly, I've always thought government officials are underpaid, and the fact that they're underpaid leads them to be total whores so they can feather their bed post post their government service. But also, we need more compensation to attract the best and brightest at a young age, especially staffers who understand AI. 
And, uh, you know, this is, um, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. This, I don't know. I, 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 I sort of, it's just there was so many people there, 60 senators and all these people. I don't know how public it is. And so there's still peacocking going on in these things, right? So I don't know. I just feel like uh, they, and they also initially did not have a very diverse, and I don't mean by people, but in terms of people who have different opinions at this thing, and they brought more academics in who are more worried. You know, I think it's fine to have an airing of, you know, of airing of the grievances or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I, action is really what I'm more interested in. Um, of course, you know, others, Sam Altman and Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai, talked to reporters about AI creating positive changes in the labor market with far more great new jobs than before. Sundar's proposals include encouraging higher use of AI in government and advancing a, quote, workforce transition agenda that benefits everyone. But action is what I want to hear about. Uh, Schumer, who blocked a lot of legislation around privacy, et cetera, talked about a timeline for getting laws in the books, telling reporters it can't be days or weeks, nor should it be years. It will be a general category of months. But Senator Blumenthal said you need to do legislation and learn at the same time. Senator Cruz said Congress is rushing to regulate a technology they don't understand. Schumer, I'm not on board with him. I He did block a lot of the Klobuchar stuff. Everyone blames him. The real smart people do. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I want some action. Yeah, let's let's be helpful. But I feel like I feel like we keep getting our heart broken. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they just fly in and fly yeah, out. And, uh, I don't know. I just feel like I don't care if they do it behind. I do care if they do it behind. I think I, I paid for this mic, as Ronald Reagan said. So I would like the mic to be open. But I get the the peacocking. Problem. Would what I would like before this legislation, if they're really if they're really honest about the need for regulation, I'd like them all to raise their hands and come to a gentle person's agreement that they're going to find a way to watermark AI and they're not going to use AI generated imagery uh, pre the presidential election leading up there's to the some, election. There's some legislation, that but area. the legislation likely won't happen. And I think we're about to see the the mother of all AI generated misinformation, Lollapalooza, in Q1 or Q2 of next year as Putin realizes the fastest blue line path to victory in Ukraine is to get Trump reelected and they'll start generating enormously damaging images and deep fakes and videos and content that's been AI tested that depositions Biden and Harris. I think that it's going to come and then and then all the big tech firms will cash their check and come November the 5th, they'll decide that they should have taken more action and wring their hands and say, we're sorry, we need to do better in 2028. Agreed. I just like to see one piece of legislation. Remove it from two hundred and thirty protections. If it's AI generated and you elevate it, if you if you agri- algorithmically elevate AI generated content, it no longer has the shield of two hundred and thirty. Let's start you, there. You don't think there should be a tech department that regulates tech, just like the FCC? Yeah, but that's not going to happen in the next six months. It, 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 that might happen, and I do think there might be at some point a head of AI and NATO and, and an AI person. But by the time they inform the president, by the time they go on their listening tour. You're talking about legislation maybe in two years. We need Q1 and Q2 when the GRU, when Putin realizes it's easier to spend $7 billion than $70 billion to try and swing the American election. And they have a lot of scientists. They're very smart. They're very strategic. You're going to see just, uh, you're, you want to see AI, what AI does? We're going to know what it did after the election when all of a sudden it comes out. And by the way, it worked just fine with the shitty technology. Right, you know, propaganda works. You know, anyway, we'll see. Let's go on a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Google going on trial and take a listener mail question about networking successfully. <laughs> 
Support for Pivot comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, including Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared, company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Scott, we're back with our second big story. The first monopoly trial of the modern internet era is now underway, US v. Google. At the center of the case, did Google abuse its power and kill the competition by paying companies to be the default search engine on devices and platforms? The government says yes, with more than 90% of the market share. Google says it dominates because their product is just better. The trial is expected to last three months with Google CEO Sundar Pichai and other executives expected to testify. Sundar will be back. I wouldn't mind Sundar coming over for a sleepover. He can come to my house. He's a nice guy. You like Sundar? Yeah, he's a nice guy. Who would I have over? I'd have Sundar, Sam, Reid Hoffman, I guess. Who's your favorite tech? That's an interesting question. Who's, your, who's Kara Swisher's favorite tech tech icon? That is a good question. Who would you not have a beer with because you don't drink? I Mark Cuban. Mark? Mark Cuban at this moment. Yeah. I really enjoy him. Uh, I think he speaks his mind, and I we disagree often, actually. Um, He's not really a tech guy, though. I mean, sort of. I like um, I like Sundar. I like Sacha. I, I have a whole chapter in my upcoming book about, like, there are people I like. Uh, there's a number of them. Brian Chesky I like. I, I would argue, Kara, that a lot, a lot of people's journalists feel that way, and that's part of the reason they're CEOs, is that... Oh, is yeah. that Susan Wojcicki, Sheryl Sandberg, Sundar Pichai, I think they make... I think they make tens of millions because they're outstanding managers, but they make billions because they're heat shields for the mendacious fox that have started those companies. Ah, uh, yes. Well, yes. Yes. That's about right. I think you got it right. I'm just talking about people on a personal basis. Anyway, uh, it's okay to like or dislike them. It's fine. I think, I, you know, I'm with the Christiane Amanpour, uh, who just, of course, did 40 years at CNN. She's been at CNN 40 years? 40 years. Wow, Truthful, not neutral. I love that. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. Christiana. I do. She's great. She's amazing. Yeah, agree, she's, a, she's, she's she's the goat. Um, anyway, the trial is expected to last three months. So, we'll, we'll, what do you think about this? What do you make of these arguments by the government? Also, Google. Another part of Google's argument is that their competition is not just other search engines, but companies like Amazon, DoorDash, Expedia. This is an argument Amazon uses. Actually, there's so much retail. It's not just us. What What do you think? What do you think? And a lot of people don't like all these payment numbers uh, coming out. Apple certainly doesn't. You know, this $10 billion or $20 billion, whatever they spent. I would argue one of two things happen. Either they find that the law, that that in a court of law, that the DOJ 
does not have the right to break them up, which to me says they're either broken up, which I think will be the correct interpretation of the law. But if they they decide they should not be broken up, I would argue we need new laws. Well, it's a narrower case about these deals, but go ahead. But okay, no one else can afford to pay Apple $20 billion to be the default search engine, and then no one else gets that level of data and can pull ahead of everybody and then spend $30 billion to lock up those key channels. And let's let's try and bring it down to, well, what impact does this have on the world regardless of the laws or antitrust or monopoly abuse? And let's, let's, let's go stakeholder by stakeholder. First, let's talk about shareholders, because at the end of the day, shareholders usually decide these things. Anytime there's a breakup of companies like this within a few years, much less 10 years, the shareholders benefit. The baby bells or the the baby bells were all worth more than the original AT&T within a decade. When eBay spun PayPal, PayPal ended up being ex- worth exponentially more. Shareholders win in breakups. So let's talk about the employees. Employees' compensation goes up because now there's more firms that have to, to compete to rent their human capital. Let's talk about the Commonwealth. I believe if YouTube and Meta were not monopolies, they would not be radicalizing young men or sending suicidal ideation images of pills, bottles, and razors, because P&G would have the opportunity to advertise on platforms that aren't hurting young people. Let's talk about um, the founders. Here's the, here's the only stakeholder that loses, the one that controls the company, because once you're worth 40 or $60 billion, you don't care about being worth 70 or 80, you wanna sit on the iron throne. So shareholders, the country, employees, the tax base, the number of startups, the venture capital ecosystem, innovation, every stakeholder wins in a breakup with the exception of the person who controls the company through dual-class shareholders. The breakup, distinct of the morality, the secret of monopoly abuse, the fastest way to oxygenate our economy on the tech side would be to break up these companies. And if you want to talk about what ails our country, it's the fact that young people are making less money and everything has gotten more expensive. And one of the things that has gotten more expensive is the monopoly rents these firms are charging on corporations. Thank you for my TED Talk. This is true. Yep. Thank you. I think I agree with you. I think this is a hundred. Uh, you know, I was talking, I saw a lot of people yesterday from both sides of this case, and I've just interviewed John Cantor and and others. And, you know, the, the Google side, of course, is like, well, we're doing good things. This is the la la la. And I'm, I keep saying 91%. I'm sorry. I don't know. Well, you don't have, you can have 91% and not be hurtful. I'm like, can you? Like, it, it just is, it seems like I, I just can't get past that number, right? The, and across the globe. And and I don't care. They they can make their arguments. There's other search companies. There aren't. There aren't. They just, and they're never, they never will happen. You know, Neva closed and they just won't happen. There's no reason for them. And these things do tend towards a network. Their argument of uh, the government's argument that these deals couldn't be made by anyone else, I think it's a pretty good one. I don't know quite what they're going to do, unwind them, make it make an iPhone. I think probably what might happen is you get the iPhone and you're like, which of these do you want to use? And then Google will be on there like a voting thing. But it doesn't matter at this point. It's too late. But if you look at the history of antitrust, breakups work really well, but almost, almost as effective is just the scrutiny you're under once the the antitrust case is underway. Why? So uh, initially, the Microsoft judgment to break up the company was overturned. Very different case, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'm talking about the the effects of antitrust when there's a there's an order or a remedy is to break up the company, and in the instance of Microsoft, it was overturned. However, however. The consent decree they ultimately ended up signing stopped them from bundling and putting small search companies out of business. Google was born of antitrust enforcement. If we didn't have a proud legacy in our nation of understanding the power corrupts, 
and going in and breaking up companies when they become too powerful, we'd all be saying, I don't know, bang it. Google, it is, it is cynical from the outset for Google not to recognize that antitrust is why they are as powerful as they are. And we need to frame it from... No, Scott, they did it because they're better. They are better, too. That's By the way, they did create a great search engine. That's that, that's the problem. Great. That's exactly right. But, what, but antitrust and breakup needs to be perceived not as punishment, but as recognition. <laughs> right. But let me say, I don't think that's what's going to happen here. I don't think this is what the, this has been made into a much smaller trial. You're comparing it to the Microsoft trial. That one similarity is that it's a bench trial, uh, which is not a jury trial. It's up to one person. Just Microsoft was ju- Judge Penfield Jackson, Thomas Penfield Jackson. This is Judge uh, Amit uh, Me- uh, Mehta um, to make a ruling. Very well regarded judge. By the way, I talked to both sides this last couple of days. They both think a lot of him. He was appointed by Barack Obama in 2014. He's been very careful. He's been very quiet, very thoughtful. I think they both think he's quite a good judge. Um, So there's no yelling about that. Um, But it's one person who's going to decide this. And the question is, how much can he, what can he actually do that really matters? And that's, that's, I think, the thing most people were talking about is since it's so limited to distribution and not, there's another advertising case being investigated. Like, it's not a mega case. It's not a mega case. And that's the that's the thing. And and the Justice Department, Kenneth Dinser said this case is about the future of the Internet. I think the future of the Internet was before when they had a chance to really do something. I'm not so sure they can do anything now. Yeah, look, I, I, I think so many wonderful things would happen. I think if you forced and I this I don't think this case directly, it might be a remedy, but say they forced uh, uh, Alphabet to spin YouTube. I think within 90 days at the first corporate offsite, the folks at an independent YouTube say, how do we grow revenues? Let's create a text-based search company. We're really good at this. And then I think Google as an independent company goes, let's start another video-based search platform. And overnight, you have two credible players in video search and text-based search, which lowers the rents on corporations and creates more jobs. Sure, but that's not an issue here. But it's a remedy. Is it of this one? No, it's not, actually. But, you know, I I don't think he can force this on them. Anyway, we'll see what happens here. It's going to go on. There's going to be a lot of these cases, whether it's Apple or Amazon and others. And it's just the, the, the... the wheels of justice move very slowly, and it's oh, it's too late. Uh, okay, Scott, let's pivot to a listener question. You've got, you've got, I can't believe I'm going to be a mailman. You, you, you've got mail. This question comes from Daniel. Hi, Kara and Scott. Thank you for all your great work. Your podcasts are always insightful, inspiring, and entertaining. I'm so lucky to get to attend Code this year, which is taking place in another week or so uh, in California. Working as the head of a technical department at a large public media company in Scandinavia has been a dream. This has been a dream of mine for several years. I expect to be outgunned at the event with my current position, but I cannot wait to get to know people from the international tech world. Have you any advice for a 36-year-old European attending an event like this? Keep up the great work. Both of you have an important inspiration for me, both personally and and professionally, kindly, uh, Daniel. Well, thank you for coming, Daniel. You should have come last year, my last year. The big show. It was a big. It was, was a, a big, big show. deal. Everybody was there. Yeah, they were. The business has definitely changed since I, frankly, innovated it many, many decades ago. <laughs> if you don't um, say so I yourself, I do okay. say so myself. Okay. I think I did. I think everyone copied everything we did, but I got out of it, which is interesting. But talk about networking advice because there is. The, the, you know, there was a weird Wall Street Journal article saying people don't want to socialize after work, which I think is one of those trend stories always make. I'm like, really? Everybody? I just think people aren't with each other. Talk about networking advice, especially, you know, you can do them at a conference or at work or what is, it is important. There is something important to 
gatherings. I do 30 minutes on this in my class in brand strategy under the brand is you session I do. And first, let me just talk about on a very meta level, we're mammals. And one of the things that is really ailing our society is a total decline in third places. And while these third places are sequestered for most people who can't afford to come to these things, I think anything that gets people together and has random encounters, and you see that that person who worked, you know, I met someone who works at Meta yesterday, and I spent some time with with her, and you just realize, you know, for the most part, these are good people. And you meet people, I, I met the, I, I think I told you, I met the guy who's starting this UK basketball league. It's just inspiring. And he's, we're going to go to a football game with our kids. It's just, it's important that we bump off of each other and smell and touch each other on a specific level as it relates to networking. If you think about brands and how brands are built, you could largely trifurcate it into pre-purchase branding, think of broadcast advertising before you engage with a, a customer, then distribution when you go into a store and you actually want to buy the product, and then post-purchase what happens after you're part of the community. Generally speaking, the first part, pre-purchase, is over-invested because people like to think if I just write, find the right cool people wearing black and I have a great new ad campaign by a guy named Don Draper, I can take my marginal product and increase share. That dog won't hunt, it is over-invested. The, the ROI on pre-purchase has declined dramatically. Then Apple moved, took its $6.5 billion of pre-purchase branding, stuck it into distribution, created 550 temples to the brands. And then the gangster of all of them, the tobacco industry, once they got it was illegal to do pre-purchase or in-store branding, move to database marketing and Marlboro points, and then could sense whether you were trying to give up smoking and started sending you points and coupons to keep you um, getting emphysema. Anyways, in terms of your own brand, in your own personal networking, what is over-invested is how much emphasis you place on in-person. We're all obsessed with personal interactions, and that's important. But in terms of where you invest or networking, one, the really smart networkers before the conference will get a list of everyone they want to meet, and they'll ping them with a note. And they'll say, hi, I'm going to be at this conference I'd really love to meet. And they do some pre-purchase investing. And then they're there, and they work hard, and they try to be charming. And then the other place people don't invest is post-purchase. You meet somebody, and you follow up. Hey, it was great to meet you. You know, I just got a message today. It was great to meet you. Do you want to catch an Arsenal game? And I'm like, that's an easy yes. And I'm probably going to get to know this person. So networking, people tend to focus too much on the in-person interaction. But the real ROI is in the pre-purchase. Quick email. I'm going to be at this conference. Do you want to grab coffee? And then the post-purchase to follow up. Mm-hmm. I love that, Scott. I was wondering where this was going, and then you landed it. You <laughs> landed that. that fucking airplane. I was there like, where is he going with the pre-purchase, yeah. pre-purchase emphysema situation? Um, but thank you for bringing emphysema into the conversation. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm a good networker, I guess, but I think you're right. You have to, one of the things I used to tell people, and I have showed up at a lot of events. I go to a lot of things, or I used to much more than I do now. But that's because I, I want to meet less people. I, I am so with you. <laughs> I feel so bad. I have a quick story about that. I saw Joanna Coles at my Cheers in New York at the Crosby Hotel. We're doing a power breakfast. And Joanna's like, Scott, come over here. I can't wait to in- introduce you to all these really f- interesting people in London. I'm like, I don't want to meet anybody. And yeah. the whole table's yeah. went quiet. I'm like, I'm about my kids and writing. I do not want to meet anybody. And then I felt, and then I sat in my lunch. I met with the, the this guy starting this super impressive. And the whole breakfast, oh, Joanna, whatever, whole breakfast. Yeah. I'm like, God, that was so fucking rude. And I had to go back and say, Joanna, I'm sorry. I just don't. Yeah, I, I know. I, I'm with you, sir. This is what you. This is what the two of us have to remember. We're in such a position of blessings that people come up to us. I literally don't have to approach anybody anymore. People come up to me and say hi, and they're really friendly and nice. And it's really important that you 
that you don't take that for granted and that you're not only really warm to people who come up to you, but occasionally, occasionally, what the hell, make an effort because it's so easy to become a bit of a snob and and just lose your mojo and lose your friendliness and lose your, and expect people to treat you as if you're famous or nice. And I find myself, I went to this dinner last night. I walked in, everyone was sit, sitting down and at the IMG dinner and I immediately like walked out and this woman, this young woman named Henny ran after me, grabbed me, sat me down, introduced her to people. At the end of dinner, I'm like, this is so important that there's people like you to handle mm -hmm. spoiled jerks like me. Yeah, yeah. Well, people don't realize you're quite shy. You're quite shy, actually. Yeah, but you know something? I wasn't when I needed to make money. Right. When I was right. younger and my ability to meet people was my ability to build wealth, I found the mojo to be friendlier. You did, but I said as a, as a person, people are always surprised when I say that. I'm like, he's actually a little shyer than you. They think you're standoffish sometimes. I'm like, no, he's shy. Like, don't mistake it. I don't think it's either of those. I just don't like people, care. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, well, then there you have it. Uh, perpetually Dissatisfied by Walter Isaacson. That could be a book. Um, people think I'm going to be so lively and entertaining and funny, and they're like, Jesus Christ, he's so boring. They do. You're like a comic, you know, like Johnny Carson was not for, it was not funny. In yeah, no, I'm, I'm, my, my, yeah, everyone in my life's like, I, we wish you were that guy on the podcast. I know, it's true. It's true. Anyways. But oh, here, this, that, that's the way it goes. Anyway, just, I think Scott's advice is excellent. I would say, I would, I, I, I was, I'm very networky, but, um, I tend to just ask a lot of questions of people, get to know them. And you never know where you're going to meet someone super interesting. 100%. That is one thing I always, I'm always like, oh, I didn't want to do that. And then I find some little tidbit, something. I went to a party last, two parties last night, actually, with Amanda. And I wanted to bring her because she's, you know, she works for the Washington Post in the uh, opinion section. I'm like, you could meet people that could maybe write things. You know, you don't know who you're going to, very interesting viewpoints. Um, and afterwards, we went to a party at the French Embassy, which is the best place to go to a party ever in Washington. I went to a party at the French embassy. It was for it was for Xfinity about the Olympics coming up in Paris. That's why they had it there. And I ran into four or five people I was really glad to hear different little things from and um and it was it was interesting. I was I didn't want to go and then I was like, "Oh, I'm glad I went." kind of thing. Anyway, um anyway, come say hello to me, Daniel. I will be at Code. It takes place September 26th and 27th in California, as I said. You can still apply to attend at voxmedia.com/code. Oh, this was a big apply. fucking ad. I feel so fooled. No, it's not. No, no, don't you're not. No, but it's actually a good question. No, I it's thought not. This was just sincere. Does he even exist or is this just a big is this just a big marketing ploy? Yes, it's Jim Bank, Daniel, a.k.a. Jim Bankoff. Uh, no, I think it's, no, but no, but it is interesting. It's an interesting How can I network and what is the premier technology conference taking place this no, year? No, you could, listen, <laughs> let me just say, go to any of them. The Journal has one coming up. There's a whole bunch of them coming mm -hmm. up. The Atlantic has one mm -hmm. that looks interesting. Bloomberg is constantly having them. them. You go to whatever event you want. Mm -hmm. You do not have to come to code. You can go to whatever you want. And like Scott, you can go on Bill Maher if you really want to, but probably you won't be invited. Anyway, Scott will, but not you, uh, Daniel. But anyway, thank you for your question. If you've got a question of your own you'd like answered, send it our way. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. All right, Scott, one more quick break. We'll be back for wins and fails. I hope you're ready today. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. 
That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code FOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Drowning in status updates and lost in endless emails? Break free with ClickUp.com, the one app to replace them all. Imagine a world where your team collaborates effortlessly in one shared space. No more chaos, just ClickUp. Your projects, tasks, and communication unified at last. Transform how you work with customizable views, seamless integration, and real-time updates. ClickUp is your shortcut to more productive days and happier teams. Join the millions of productive teams already streamlining their workflow. Visit ClickUp.com to get started. Okay, Scott, let's hear some wins and fails. Would you like to go first? You go first. I haven't thought about it yet. Well, my win is Christiane Amanpour. She's just the GOAT. 40 years, just a, still as sharp as a tech, still really doing it. She's been everywhere, um, all over the place. I think she's uh, she has a real sense of... Um, moral outrage still, which I think is good about, especially around um, really terrible places uh, she's been. Um, And she's done some really serious on-the-ground reporting. I think she's just a legend. Fails? I don't think I have one. Let me think about it. You go go next. Uh, My win is Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, He's decided to step down at the adolescent age of 76. Uh, I think he's a really impressive good man. Uh, married for 53 years. He was a missionary in France. And actually, I don't know if you know this, I love Mormons. I absolutely love mm, Mormons. Okay. I was raised All with right. Mormons. Uh, mm-hmm. A touch homophobic and racist, but other than that, I love the Church of Latter-day Saints. And I grew up with Mormons, and they were super into their family, super into their country, super, a lot of emphasis on success and sports, and it was just such a positive influence on me. Anyways, Senator Romney Uh, Married 53 years, always a life of public service combined with, the guy was a baller uh, professionally, Bain Capital, I think he was the founder of Bain Capital, and then decided to go into public service. And I think he's always demonstrated, regardless of what you think of his politics, I think he's always demonstrated a decent amount of grace and, and courage. And the Republican Party just no longer recognizes him. That I, I would re- recommend people to the Atlantic story. A guy's been following him for two years for a book uh, there, an Atlantic writer. And uh, I have to say, it's quite some it's some story. The book should be amazing. I, I didn't want to read a Mitt Romney book, but it looks fantastic. Go I, ahead. I, uh, the guy's going on the way he came out. He, he, whatever his name, Representative Santos, walked by him and Senator Romney. And it's not easy to do this. It's easy to talk this way behind people's back. He said, young man, you should be ashamed of yourself. And uh, he wasn't he wasn't mean. He wasn't he wasn't going on TikTok and calling him names. He said it to his face. And I, I think he's had a life of service and professional success and five sons, uh, you know, five decade long marriage. I, and we were talking about networking. I grew up with a lot of Mormons. I think mission and service 
um, uh, are such fantastic training vehicles because, I mean, what's the, what do you get? What do you get when you combine a Jehovah's Witness and a Mormon? I don't know, but I can't get this guy off my porch. It teaches them to be really aggressive and friendly and endure rejection. And I think that is a gift for a young person. I think every young person should be in a retail job where they face the public so they can endure people being rude to them and develop empathy for what it means to be serving people. And also, I think every young person should be forced to be in some sort of sales job because what it shows you is that you can survive rejection and it gives you the mojo and the aggression you need to be successful. And mission is kind of that. You want to talk about rejection. Have you ever had missionaries uh, knock on your door? Yes, they do not stay long. Oh, I invite them in. I love I love missionaries. Anyways, <laughs> I regaled them with stories about how I played on the oh, no, church softball team and that my first kiss was Libby, with Libby Pettit, uh, who was in the church. Oh, no. And they, okay. that was literally as far as it went, see above Mormon. Okay. Anyways, right. um, but I think that uh, I, uh, going back to networking, I think at a young age to have that sort of international experience, learn another language, that's why I'm a big fan of national service. So anyways, Senator Senator Romney, I think he's lived a, a life of professional success, family, God. He's very yeah. he's obviously a very spiritual he's, man. Let me just say he's dropping the bombs. He said, "Why would anyone want to have lunch with JD Vance?" He like he's going after. He's like, "I don't give a fuck. I'm going to tell you all what I think," which I I kind of like. I like Mitt Romney unplugged. But it's not it's not mean spirited. It comes from he's not trying to raise money. <laughs> It's really uh, I think he believes mean. these things. Read the piece. I, I think he believes, think he believes them. I do, but let me say it's I'm 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 all there for it because I think he's a tr he's dropping truth bombs. The nation would be in such a better place if it had more Republicans like Senator Mitt Romney. That is, but they are fewer and fewer. That's right. There's no place for them anymore. Fewer. The, the the good ones the good ones leave. The terrible ones stay. And also, most importantly, can you think of any 76 year old as good looking as Mitt Romney? He's in great shape. He's got great hair. Anyways, I just I think he's a great role model of masculinity and service. And I think he's had a an esteemed career. And not only that, and this goes to my fail, inherited this incredible skill that is it has incredible dearth amongst our elected leaders, and that is he knows when to leave. And that's my fail. I did the actuarial tables on our uh, likely uh, our likely uh, nominees on the Democratic and the Republican side. At this point, uh, Joe Biden, every year, there's a six to seven percent chance he's going to die that year. And there's a four and a half to five and a quarter percent chance mortality rate when you're at um, Trump's age. And Trump, you could probably dial up a little bit because he's obese. But again, he looks really at the same time, he's very robust. What does that mean? That means in the next six years, there's a 41% chance that Biden's going to die. And there's a, like a 37% chance that Trump's going to die. Meaning, meaning that in the next six years before the pre next president would be elected on Inauguration Day and whatever it is, January of 29, there is a two in three chance that one of them will die. And that's who we've decided we're going to bank the nation on. So uh, my, my win is Senator Mitt Romney, and my fail is that unlike this good senator, these individuals don't know when to leave, even when it's probably the right thing to do for the country. All right. All right. There you have it. There you have it. My, you have a fail, actually. Um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is flying to Silicon Valley uh, this week to meet with Elon Musk uh, in an effort, let me read this, in an effort to help ease the escalating crisis over anti-Semitism. The meeting is the latest step in a campaign by Musk's Jewish friends and allies and executives at a social media company to stave off mounting controversy. Um, Netanyahu has, has done this before when he repeated anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish financier George Soros. Um, and this guy comes in and helps him 
get over it. It's kind of gross. I mean, I'm sorry. It just is. He just well, should. anti-Semitism meets fascism. Uh, it's really weird that he would do this. Um, right, then, isn't that, yeah, trying to unwind the Supreme Court? Yeah. Um, they're trying to broker peace. And then Joe Lonsdale, uh, who co-founded um, Palantir, a friend of his, uh, Linda Yaccarino has gone to damage control mode. Like, why are they keeping helping this? Let's let let's let it play out. These people just come in and try to assuage the situation and bring it. Netanyahu, what a this is know. this is they are meeting their PR representatives are meeting. This is just such bullshit. You know what I've been thinking a lot mm-hmm. about, Carrie. That, Speaking of that, stunts, oh, yeah. God, talk about stunts. That last paragraph you read of of Isaacson's book, which said, you know, look at his childhood and look how tough it is and kind of excusing his actions. And I was actually thinking about you. I was saying, okay, you know, they talk about how his father traumatized him. Your father died when you were five, and yet you figured yeah, out a way. I had a really bad stepfather. I had a very unfortunate But for stepfather. some reason, it didn't end up in anti-Semitism. It didn't. <laughs> I mean, it did not. it's just such, it it's didn't. so ridiculous. Ridiculous. The, this is one of my questions for Walter. The different the different standards we set for people because they're billionaires. Uh, I just find this. I I, I list. I I couldn't help it. I went and read that last paragraph, and it felt like that. It felt like a reheated version of that Think Different commercial from the '90s from Lee Clow and Shia Day, the crazy ones. And I'm like, that's what we're going to start doing. Because here's the thing: all life, all heroes, all villains comes down to comic books, and that is every comic book is born of childhood trauma. But here's the decision you have. The superheroes are born of trauma. They're the, they're the, they're the son of orphans. Batman, Bruce Wayne was the son of orf- orphans. But the villain is someone who experiences childhood trauma and turns it into hate. But childhood trauma is no, no I mean, it's, an, it's a reason to give people empathy, but it doesn't justify anti-Semitism or misogyny. I agree. I don't get it. I don't get why everybody... Um... I don't. It's. It, let me read this quote. Um, it's clear Twitter's drop off in ad revenue started months ago as a result of changes the platform made to ad formats. Since Sarah Livingston, a marketing analyst consultant, has nothing to do with the ADL. Another advertising executive who spoke on the condition of uh, anonymity to describe industry conversations said there's been a 75% drop off in the number of people click on ads since Musk's acquisition of the company. The person said the ADL has not been pressuring advertisers to stop spending on the platform lately. This is such, and for Netanyahu running in and these friends trying to this is what they spend their fucking time doing is 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 doing this rather than fixing the actual problem it's making sure that 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 he doesn't look that way if he, maybe they should make sure he doesn't talk like that and so i'm sorry linda and joe stop it please stop it it's not it's not um it's it's so wrong on every aspect. But you fly in anyone you want, anyone to, to whitewash what is a bad situation. And in general, this is not, it's not just an Elon thing. It's a lot of people in tech as I, as I reflect on it. It's just, they never deal with the actual problem. They deal with making them look better. I just, I don't, it's such bad parenting. I don't know what else to if say. If my jokes yeah. become profane and inappropriate enough, will you bring in Trudeau? And who's the prime minister of the president of New Zealand? Yeah, I know, exactly. And I'll give you this this one quote from one of his his helpers. Uh, he doesn't hate Jews, but he's a fighter. And when you punch him, he's going to punch back. Oh, fuck you. With the outrage. Part of who he is is an aggressive <laughs> force of nature. He doesn't understand the second mm. order effects. Mm-hmm. He's a 52-year-old man. He should understand the second. Anyway, I, 
just fix the problem. Fix the problem and stop. You know, the, the, one of my favorite, I'll tell you my favorite person in Silicon Valley over the many years is a guy named Jim Barksdale. He ran Netscape and he had to deal with giant toddler Mark Andreessen during those days. Um, and one of the things he said, he had a bunch of aphorisms. He's from the South and I actually had dinner with him and Walter Isingson once. And he said, just remember, Kara, and he used to say this to people at Netscape, to keep the main thing, the main thing. That was his big business Broma. And I was like, exactly. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing, which was, we know what the main thing is. So anyway, there you go. There you go. Jim Barksdale, legend. What is what is Jim Barksdale up to? Oh, uh, you know, he's retired. He lives down in Mississippi, I think. Um, he's, you know, older. Um, he's a wonderful man. He was my favorite. And what a good man. Anyway, uh, that's it. That's the show. We'll be back on Tuesday with more Pivot. Uh, Scott, please read us out. Today's show is produced by Lara Naiman, Zoe Marcus, and Taylor Griffin. Brandon McFarlane engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows, Neil Severio, and Gaddy McBain. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back next week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Happy 16th birthday, Alec. Your birth was the... the the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, happy birthday, Alan.